people here today. And I'm worried our guests from Missouri are going to go back to Missouri and tell everyone that it's not only cold outside, but it's, uh, they keep their buildings cold inside. Um, but uh, that's all right. They just uh, breed them tough in Rochester and forgetful. <coughs> so appreciate you being here. And uh, these face warmers are really handy on days like uh, today. So um, enjoy, enjoy those. Um, if you missed the Westerholms visit here at uh, Lawson Road a couple of weeks ago, I included, uh, Chad recorded a little video that we included in the online service last week. So if you missed them in person and online, uh, I can still send you that video and you can get that update of what they've been doing. Or you can just go back and skip through and find it on last week's online worship service. But let me know if you would like that sent to you, uh, just so you're in the loop about uh, how God is working over in Mozambique. All right, today is a, kind of a little bit of a different kind of sermon. Um, I, I said last week that we get in this pattern at the end of Acts where Paul is on trial uh, again and telling his story again. Um, so a lot of the material is, is repetitious, which is, is okay. But it, it gives me an opportunity just to uh, take a, a different approach with what we do today. And so I'm going to actually spend quite a bit of time uh, sharing history with you, okay, and, and information from history. And then we'll bring it all together at the end. But the author of the book of Acts um, is, is Luke. And Luke apparently likes to use patterns in his storytelling as he describes the events. And one of the patterns that he uses, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of, and the book of Acts. And one of the patterns he uses is to show how uh, events happen to Jesus, but then similar events happen in the life of Paul. And I think one of the reasons that he does this is a way to uh, kind of validate the ministry of Paul, okay? that he is following in the footsteps of Jesus and, and demonstrating the faithfulness of, of Paul. And so it's a kind of a, a storytelling technique that's maybe not immediately obvious. Uh, so uh, let's see if this works. Help me out here, uh, Ernest, yep, there we go. And so I, I have up here a few of these parallels on the screen. I'll read through them as well if you can't see it or if you're somebody that's listening to the podcast. Um, both of their ministries begin with a voice from heaven and a baptism. Okay? Now, Jesus begins, they both happen simultaneously, pretty much. For Paul, there's, what, about a week in between. But it's that divine sort of uh, appointment and a baptism. Uh, get things going for both of them. And, and then if we just jump through to the end of their ministries, uh, we see that they both take these journeys to Jerusalem. And, and they're not just, oh, let's jump on a bus and we'll be there in 10 minutes. They are uh, journeys. They take a lot of time. And, and there's a lot of chapters telling about it. And so... Uh, 
What's interesting also is that Jesus, while he's on his way to Jerusalem, when he turns to go to Jerusalem, is the moment when he starts predicting his death. And he predicts his death three times, at least three times, right? Luke tells us of three times that he predicts his death while traveling to Jerusalem. And and then um, Paul, on his journey to Jerusalem, is told three times by other prophets uh, that he is going to be um, bound, he's going to be restrained, he's going to find trouble and danger when he goes to Jerusalem. In fact, at one point, uh, one of the prophets grabs his wrist and, and takes off his, his um, robe, sash, and, and wraps it around there and says, this is what's going to happen to you. So it was pretty, pretty clear uh, what awaited him. So, and, and then when, he, when they get to Jerusalem, it, this one I think is really interesting. They both have four trials that were, that were told about. Okay? And, uh, but, but it's not just that they both have four trials. They both have a trial before the Sanhedrin. Their first trial is before the Sanhedrin. Then they both have two before Roman officials. So uh, Jesus is tried before Pilate. Then he gets sent off to Herod. And then he comes back to Pilate to finish things up. For, for Paul, uh, as we saw last week, his trial is before Felix. We're going to see today he has another trial before Festus. And then another hearing before uh, one of the Herods. So, Sanhedrin, two before Roman officials, and one before a Herod. And then, lastly, they're both charged with, um, by, by the same people, by Jewish religious institutional leaders, with sedition against the Roman Empire. Uh, remember the accusation that hangs above Jesus on the cross? King of the Jews, right? Well, an empire can't have two kings. And this one wasn't appointed by Caesar. <laughs> so uh, um, that, was, that was Jesus' charge that was levied against him. And then Paul, we will see in, uh, in verse 8 of chapter, Acts chapter 25, when Paul makes his defense, he says, I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. There were accusations that he was um, undermining Caesar, perhaps causing trouble, maybe trying to start another riot, lead an insurrection. So they both have this same charge brought against them, that they're a threat to the empire. And the Roman officials both find both of them innocent. And neither of them gain their freedom because of it. So just some really interesting... Now, of course, Jesus goes and dies. uh, And Paul doesn't, at least not, not immediately. Uh, so, so it's not exactly the same. But nonetheless, Luke shows how Paul is following in the footsteps of Jesus. I could put up a different chart um, that shows similarities between the events that happened to Peter in the first 12 chapters of, this, of Acts and the events that happened to Paul in his ministry. Again, sort of like an approval Um, showing how that they're both faithful and and that they're both doing God's work and uh, where there's overlap. Uh, So I'm not going to do that though. So another one of these overlaps is in the life of John the Baptist. It's interesting that the Gospel of Luke actually doesn't 
tell the story, the account of uh, John's death or John's imprisonment and, and death. The other three Gospels, I think, all tell it, but not Luke. Nonetheless, I suspect that Luke was aware of it. And he knew what had happened to John. He knew how it all played out. And, and so now as he tells the story of Paul, I think we see these echoes of what happens with John. And so I want to start there, and uh, we'll, we'll reference here Mark chapter 6. And, uh, and we'll see if we can follow along with these events. John was a vocal critic. Remember, John's ministry is mostly about calling people to repentance. And along those lines, he's a vocal critic of Herod. Um, This Herod is Herod Antipas. Herod had married his brother's wife. Uh, So his brother is Philip. Philip is married to Herodias. Um, Herod Antipas goes, they're living in Rome. Philip and Herodias are living in Rome. Herod Antipas goes to visit. And uh, over the course of the summer, then um, Herod Antipas and Herodias have an affair. And Herodias arranges to divorce Philip. And she goes and marries. And Antipas, Herod Antipas, divorces his wife. And so Antipas and Herodias are married. Now, for devout Jews, this is a great sin. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 21 specifically forbids a man marrying his brother's wife while his brother is still living. Okay. Now, the Herod family, if you've ever tried to keep track of it, is a complicated one. Partly because so many of them go by the name Herod. Uh, and, and really, that's just a, a title that is given to him. It's kind of like, it becomes kind of like king, or like Caesar. You know, it started off with Julius Caesar, which was just his last name. And then, along the line, all of the emperors become known as Caesar, even though they have no um, biological connection to Julius Caesar. So this is, we'll, we'll see if we can make any sense of this. This is one of the simpler family trees that I could find up there. And it starts with Herod the Great. He was the very first Herod. He was the Herod who um, killed all the children in the town when Jesus was born, in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. And he died, he himself died not all that long after. And remember, Jesus was down in Egypt with Mary and Joseph. And then when Herod died, they come back up and settle in, um, in Galilee. So Herod the Great gets this all started. Herod, during his lifetime, married at least 10 wives and continued to have children for around 50 years. So there were a lot of little Herods running around. So it's already tough to keep track of, right? Now, Herod was very paranoid. It sort of ran in the family. He killed considerable number of his own children in order to maintain his grip on the throne. So he's not a good guy for more reasons than one. In addition to there being a lot of them, a lot of them become rulers over the Jews. 
What's really interesting is that the Herod family are not um, ethnically Jews. They were, uh, Herod the Great was an Edomian, right? That means he came from Edomia. And that may not sound familiar to you. In the Old Testament, that country is called Edom. So he was an Edomite. Now, somewhere along the line, the uh, Edom was occupied by foreign force. I think it was a Roman army came in, defeated them, occupied them, and told them all that they had to convert to Judaism. So they did. So the Edomites kind of became Jews. You can imagine, though, that they're not super devout about their faith because most religions that are uh, conversions that happen at the point of a sword don't have an enormous amount of of buy-in. You do what you have to do to survive. And we see that in the lifestyle of the Herods, that although they're Jewish, you know, or or the family was Jewish uh, because of that was just how they were raised, uh, that their lifestyle is not Christian, uh, not Christian, not godly. Okay? That their, their lifestyle does not honor, honor God. And so another reason that Herod was accepted by the Jews as their ruler, so he was put in place by the Romans, but the Jews still had to accept him, uh, he married uh, royalty, Jewish royalty. Some of you have heard the story of the Maccabees. The Maccabees were a a family that uh, in that period before Jesus was born, uh, so a couple of hundred years before Jesus was born, staged a revolt and they established Jewish independence for a century or two. And they they had defeated, pushed back the Persians and the Greeks and, and they ruled themselves. Now later Rome comes in and sort of takes over to help them out. They say, we'll help you out and we'll take over as well. And uh, very benevolent of them. Uh, but, but those Maccabees was a, a famous family because they had led it, led that revolt. So one of their a princess, is the description given to her, marries Herod the Great. Uh, Herod's second wife. So not only is he appointed by Rome, he is nominally Jewish, and he does things like rebuilding the temple. You know, so he's doing great things, building projects for the Jewish nation, and he's married to this famous, influential Jewish woman. So uh, he, that was kind of how he established his power there in Jerusalem. Herod was also the consummate politician. Uh, he went to Rome. Uh, he wined and dined with the senators. That was how he was appointed ruler there in Jerusalem. And many of his children and his sons were educated in Rome also. They would spend their teen years and young adult years in Rome, allowing them to create influential networks. And it paid off as they were given uh, positions of power and authority back in uh, the region of Judea. All of this to say, Herod's family is relationally complex. Okay. Um, so if, you, if you're just looking up here, so we see uh, 
Herodias, okay, this gets, she's the wife of her uncle, Philip, and then she divorces Philip and marries her other uncle, Herod Antipas. Okay? So they're the ones that John the Baptist is preaching against, is Herod Antipas and Herodias. Okay? With 50 kids or whatever, some, it was easy to have an uncle and a niece that are very similar in age. You know, so uh, that wasn't that, that strange, I don't guess. But I think the marriage was still a little strange. All right, so then we, we come down. Herod Antipas is the one who um, examines Jesus. You know, most of the, all the Herods in the gospel, aside from the very beginning, the birth of Jesus, are this guy. Okay. Um, and so for John, we're told that while he was under Herod's control in, our, in Mark chapter 6, verse 20, he's in prison and we're told here in this verse that Herod feared John and protected him in, in jail, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John speak, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Now, eventually Herod kills John as a favor for his wife and stepdaughter. Okay. So let's go to Acts. But notice the relationship that John has with Herod. That Herod likes to listen to him, is puzzled by what he says, respects him, um, but, but never obviously converts or follows what it is that he says. So in Acts chapter 24 and verse 24, we're introduced to another power couple. This is really the, the chapters of power couples. Several days later, in verse 24 of Acts 24, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked, we read this last week, about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and said, that's enough. Um, and he would meet with him at the end of verse 26, we're told, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Sounds a lot like what happened to John the Baptist, doesn't it? This sort of ongoing dialogue with the, the ruler. The ruler's intrigued, respects the person, but doesn't make any significant life change. Felix, I want to introduce you Felix. Felix is an interesting person. He started life out as a slave. He was freed worked his way up through the Roman bureaucracy and somehow along the way managed to marry three women of royal birth. That'll help you work your way up through the, the ranks of the Roman bureaucracy. The first woman that he married was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. You may have heard of them. The last was Drusilla, the, the woman that appears here in the text. And if you look up the screen, you will see Drusilla on here. She is a member of the Herod family. Granddaughter, great-granddaughter of Herod the Great. Um, and so when, when Felix and Drusilla come to listen to Paul, he's again appearing before a Herod, part of the Herod uh, family. But when Felix met Drusilla, 
she was already married. And you see a theme going on here that didn't really stop anything. He sent her letters promising her, we have an account of them in Josephus, promising her happiness if she would just divorce the guy that she's with and come and live with him. And he must have been very eloquent uh, because that is what she did. So yes, she is Jewish, but remember her Jewishness is already questionable because she is you know, ethnically part of this Herod family that is Idumean. They're religiously nominal Jews. And so she leaves whatever Jewishness she has to marry a Gentile, to follow him wherever he may be posted next in the Roman Empire. And so Paul, this Jewish Roman citizen, and there wouldn't have been very many of those in that part of the world, who's an apostle to the Gentiles, finds himself talking to a very complicated situation. Like, what I, what I want you to, to see as we go through here is that life is complex, that people are complex, that they're not just, oh, that's a Jewish king, he's Jewish or a prince, or a princess, or royalty that, that, oh, I know who I'm talking to. No, these are people that have complicated lives, complicated relationships, complicated cultures. And Paul is going to speak to them, even while he's in jail, in prison. And he's going to say, hey, God loves you. God died for you. And so we come over to chapter 25, and we see that Felix is replaced by Festus. Festus doesn't really provide Paul with any more justice than Felix did. If you read through, I'd love to, another way of approaching this passage is just to look at all the power plays that take place when Festus becomes governor. He travels down to Jerusalem immediately, to meet with the local religious leaders, knowing how influential they are, and he needs to be able to work with them, establish a working relationship. And so within just a couple of days of arriving, he's down to Jerusalem. And, and the first thing, at least according to Luke, the, and it's more a pri- you know, certainly a priority for Luke, the first thing that they uh, point that they raise is, hey, if you want to find favor with us, you want a working relationship with us, you want to get on with us, there's this prisoner up there in Caesarea. They said, we'd like you to bring him down here because they plan to kill him. And and remember that this comes out of Festus wanting to do them a favor. So what Festus says is, I'll tell you what, how about you guys come up to Caesarea because that's the regional capital and uh, you can, uh, we'll have a trial. But if you're doing someone a favor, then what sort of trial is it going to be? It's going to be a trial that gives them the outcome that they want. And sure enough, at the end of that trial, um, in in verse 9, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial 
before me there on these charges. There's no reason to move the trial. And Paul recognizes something's in the air, something fishy going on here. And so as a result of that, Paul, at uh, the end of verse 11, he says, I appeal to Caesar. He could have done this two years ago. He sat in jail for two years. This is last resort. Because appealing to Caesar doesn't mean you'll get more justice. Caesar may be in a bad mood that day. He doesn't want to deal with whatever is going on in the provinces. And he just says, get out of my sight. Feed him to the lions. Life is cheap. I don't have time to bother myself with you. You see, it's not a, a promise of justice. It simply gives Paul a lifeline. And so, um, once he says that, Festus says, yep, okay, we're going to do this. It takes the, the case off uh, Festus' docket, and he, he no longer has a reason to send him to Jerusalem, and that plan to kill Paul on that trip has uh, You've fallen by the wayside. So there's, a, again, a lot going on, a lot of power politics. And into that mix we find King Agrippa. King Agrippa is another Herod. And he uh, rules sort of an, uh, overseas an area north and east of Galilee. And so he just pops over to Caesarea to meet the new governor. You can imagine sort of the groveling and the, you know, who's got the power and they're feeling each other out here. You know, am I going to get the favor or the, people, the, the high priest in Jerusalem, are they going to get the favor? Because even though Agrippa wasn't based in Jerusalem, he had been given control of the high priest's vestments. These were fancy clothes that um, the, the high priest would wear on special days. They were kind of kept under lock and key by the Romans, or by Agrippa, uh, working for the Romans, as a means of making sure they didn't turn into some sort of kingly uh, sort of costume. You know, say, look, I've got the crown. The, you know, the crown jewels belong to me. They, they said, no, we'll keep those. You can have them on special days, and then once your day's over, you give them back to me. So Agrippa was the keeper of those vestments. It was also his job to appoint the high priest. The Romans had given him that authority. And so every couple of years, it was his job. So he's a very influential person, but you can imagine that the power brokers in Jerusalem were not always seeing eye to eye with Agrippa. And so now you have Festus, who's already gone to see the power brokers in Jerusalem. Agrippa says, hey, I better go over and see Festus, because Festus is over all of them. And so just a lot of power politics taking place, and Paul is in the middle of this, just a pawn. Paul is a nobody. Paul is a prisoner. Paul is disposable. That's why Festus is so happy to say, yeah, I'll send him down to Jerusalem. Whatever you want, whatever makes you happy, he's nobody important. But during the trial, oh, well, let me just, during the trial, um, Paul had at least captured the imagination of Festus, and he couldn't understand it. Sounds a bit like the Herod back with John, right? He was puzzled. Um, and so when Agrippa comes, he says, hey, you're Jewish. You can explain to me what's going on. You can help me make heads to tail of this, because here's the thing. 
Now that Paul is going to Caesar, Festus is going to have to send a letter explaining to Caesar why he's there. Because the first thing Caesar will ask is why, what was the problem back there in Caesarea? Why wasn't this sorted out there? And so Festus needs to send an explanation or he, does, he may upset Caesar, um, which wouldn't be good for him. And so Agrippa turns up, just the man I want to see. You can help me make sense of this. Well, Agrippa, we're just told that Agrippa and Bernice arrive at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Who's Bernice? Well, if you're looking at our handy-dandy family tree up here, you see down here Agrippa and Bernice. Okay. They're brother and sister. Okay. Now, Bernice is an interesting person. Um, and I want to give you a little bit like that, because it seems like these Herods always have controversy with them, right, in their relationships. Bernice had three husbands. She's the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. He was the Herod that killed James at the beginning of the book of Acts. And uh, anyway, Bernice had gone to Rome with her brother, but she had three husbands. The first at about age 13 was a political marriage um, to sort of make alliances. Um, And by age 22, all three marriages had ended. We meet her at about age 32. But it wasn't just that she'd had these marriages and was single. There were rumours that because she, when she was not married, she lived with her brother. And there were rumours that existed that they had an incestuous relationship. And not just rumours, uh, Josephus records these, but there are also, we still have written records from writers in Rome who were making fun of Agrippa and Bernice. Uh, so it, it was a quite... Uh, well-circulated rumor. Later in life, she becomes the mistress of Titus. Titus was a general. He was the general who besieged Jerusalem before its collapse and its destruction in 70 AD. And so Bernice becomes his mistress. Titus leaves early and goes back to Rome and takes Bernice with him. They plan to get married, but because of the revolt and the battle and the war and everything going on in, in Jerusalem, the Jews are out of favor. Titus says, politically, is not the time for me to marry you, Bernice, because you're Jewish. In fact, I'm never going to do that. Get out of my sight. And she goes back and lives with her brother. And that's kind of the end of the story that we know about them. So, again, as Paul is standing before Festus, And this Jewish rulers, it's a complicated situation. So you keep track, there's a quiz you can pick up on the way out. Of all those relationships and marriages and... No, not really. So Paul's imprisonment, two years in Caesarea prison, has very little to do with the legal system. Everything to do with power, money, and relationships. 
Even when Paul has a, uh, a Jewish authority in the room with him, the Jewish authority is not on his side. The Jewish authority is a Herod, somebody who has opposed, tried to kill Jesus, has killed John, you know, in this family, has killed James, and now is, is angling to kill Paul himself. The Herod is an unfaithful Jew and probably only identifies as a Jew for the sake of convenience. I think it's fascinating to me what these women, the presence of these women in this story add to the story and their, their role. Um, Herodias, Drusilla, and Bernice. They're all descendants of Herod the Great. All with these complicated lives. Do we feel, you know, you think of Herodias and the way that she killed, arranged for John the Baptist to be killed. Maybe we see her as the villain. Maybe some of the others we see as victims. Certainly being given off to be married at age 13 sounds like a victim, doesn't it? And then just the messy, complicated lives that they live from that point on. And these are the power couples in the region of Judea. And it's worth noting, I think, that these Herod family members have completely assimilated into Roman culture. They may go to Jerusalem for the major festivals. They may go there on these special occasions but they've long ago entrusted their future, their fame, their fortune to the influence of Caesar, not to the God of Israel. And nonetheless, how does Paul interact with them? I think we saw last week that he spoke to Felix about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Like, he's kind of like John the Baptist. He's not going to back down or compromise his standards or God's expectations. But John, even John did it. I don't know John ends up dead. But John does it in a way that continues the conversation. Paul does it in a way that continues the conversation and keeps it, keeps it going. You see, I don't think that even as they condemn the marriage, as John condemns the marriage of Herod and Herodias, as Paul says, hey, you need to have justice and self-control and there's judgment coming, that even as he does that, he's not constructing barriers with those people. He's doing it in a way that builds the curiosity, that builds and sustains relationship, that he maintains his reputation as a righteous person. And as Paul is doing this, more than just condemning how they're living, he's telling them about Jesus. Do you notice how when Festus talks to Agrippa, he says, let me... He says, I've got this Jew here, and he's a prisoner. And he says, I can't really figure out what's going on. But he does seem to think that this guy, Jesus, was dead and is now alive. Right? And if somebody's going to interact with us and they're going to have a takeaway, that's a pretty good one. That Jesus was dead and is alive. And so obviously that's what Paul was talking about. He wasn't spending 30 minutes telling him how messed up his marriage was or his previous marriage was. Or he was there and making sure that he talked about Jesus. 
But here's where we find the great irony, I think. Paul offers these people an invitation to come and join the kingdom of God. And one of the reasons that he was on trial is because the Jews were uh, fearful that Paul was allowing Gentiles into the Jewish nation with, without requiring circumcision. And so he says, they're just going to overwhelm us. You know, like you're making it too easy. They're going to come in. They're going to take over. We'll lose our Jewishness, Paul. At the same time, they are ruled by this family that has totally assimilated into Roman culture, away from God. And so there's no, either way, there's going to be this transition if people don't stay where they begin their whole lives. It's going to be a movement. The, the thing is, when they assimilate into Roman culture, they lose all of their Jewishness. They lose their connections to their people, to their nation, to their God. And as Paul invites them to say, hey, come and join the kingdom of God. He invites them to come willingly. It's not being imposed on them. He says, this is a choice that you can still make. He says to them, you have wealth. You have power. You're standing in judgment over me. But he says, I know that your lives and your marriages are a mess. I know that you're disconnected from Yahweh. You're disconnected from the Jewish people. But he says, you still have an opportunity to turn away from Caesar, who is going to die, and to follow Jesus, who has died and come alive again. You have the opportunity to place your future not at the feet of Caesar, but at the feet of the resurrected Jesus. I think it's so easy for us to be intimidated by the ungodliness of the world around us. It's so easy for us to point fingers. It's so easy for us to look out and say, look at those relationships and how messed up they are. Look at Hollywood. Look at the magazines and the super grocery store checkouts. Look at what's wrong with the world. I'm glad we're not like that. I'm glad we've been rescued from that. I'm glad God has rescued us from that. And, and, and when we phrase it that way, it's like, oh, God has done this for us. God has brought us to a safe place where we don't have to worry about those lifestyles and those ethical quandaries anymore and the wickedness and everything that is out there and 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 then in many churches we begin this war against the world okay where where the world becomes the enemy that that we have to resist them that we have to change them that we have to overwhelm them and 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 it becomes this light and darkness battle but i think here's our bottom line and something that paul demonstrates because he doesn't take that approach he is able to maintain the difference. He says, I'm light and you're darkness, but it doesn't ever become a battle, I don't think, in these conversations. As messed up as these people are. And I think Paul had this understanding. The Christians are not saved from the world. We're saved for the world. We're not saved from the world. We're saved for the world. And so we can't develop this mindset that says, oh, they're all evil, they're bad, they're, they're our enemies out there, because we're called to serve them, to bring them good news, that they're the people that we're to love, they're our neighbors when it says to love our neighbors, they're the people that we go into all the world and share the good news of Jesus, they're the people that need Jesus, we're the salt, we're the light for the benefit of them. And when we think that we're, we exist here at Lawson Road because we're saved from the world 
and that God's protecting us, there is certainly some truth to that. Okay? That we have to transition from our life of sin to a life of light. But, uh, but, but that's not the end of the story. Because that saving act is not ultimately for our benefit. It's for the benefit of the world. Paul had every opportunity to beat down this family, this Herod family that was so messed up from generations before. He could have brought up all the times that they tried to kill Christians. That your grandfather tried to kill Jesus. But let me tell you what happened. He said, your father, he killed James. And two days later, he's dead, eaten by worms. Like, I don't think Paul took that approach. Instead, he recognizes people that simply need to hear about Jesus. And he's able to maintain his values, his relationship with God in the midst of these difficult circumstances. And we'll see next week more how Paul uses this opportunity to present Jesus. And so I think it's very real for churches today. It's so easy for us to pat ourselves on the back giving thanks for how God and what God has rescued us from. But we can't stop there. God has rescued us for the sake of the world. Who have you been rescued for? Who has God rescued you so that you can benefit them? I think it gives us a completely different way of looking at life, looking at the world. And if Paul can see those that are plotting his death, not as his enemies, but simply as people to need Jesus, then I think we've got a long way to go.